Section 8 of The History of England from the Ascension of James II, Volume 3, Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ben Wilford. The History of England from the Ascension of James II, Volume 3, Chapter 14, by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Section 8. With the practice of the whole Christian world, the authoritative teaching of the Church of England appeared to be in strict harmony. The homily on willful rebellion, a discourse which inculculates, in unmeasured terms, the duty of obeying rulers, speaks of none but actual rulers. Nay, the people are distinctly told that in homily that they are bound to obey, not only their legitimate prince, but any usurper whom God shall in anger set over them for their sins. And surely it would be the height of absurdity to say that we must accept submissively such usurpers as God sends in anger, but must pertinaciously withhold our obedience from usurpers whom he sends in mercy. Grant that it was a crime to invite the Prince of Orange over, a crime to join him, a crime to make him king, yet what was the whole history of the jewish nation and of the christian church but a record of cases in which providence had brought good out of evil and what theologian would assert that in such cases we ought from abhorrence of the evil to reject the good on these grounds a large body of divines still asserting the doctrine that to resist the sovereign must always be sinful conceived that william was now the sovereign whom it would be sinful to resist. To these arguments the non-jurors replied that St. Paul must have meant by the powers that be, the rightful powers that be, and that to put any other interpretation on his words would be to outrage common sense, to dishonor religion, to give scandal to weak believers, to give an occasion of triumph to scoffers. The feelings of all mankind must be shocked by the proposition that, as soon as a king however clear his title, however wise and good his administration, is expelled by traitors. All his servants are bound to abandon him and to range themselves on the side of his enemies. In all ages and nations, fidelity to a good cause in adversity had been regarded as a virtue. In all ages and nations, the politician whose practice was always to be on the side which was utmost had been despised. This new Toryism was worse than Whiggism. To break through the ties of allegiance because the sovereign was a tyrant was doubtless a very great sin, but it was a sin for which specious names and pretexts might be found, and to which a brave and generous man, not instructed in divine truth and guarded by divine grace, might easily fall. But to break through the ties of allegiance, merely because the sovereign was unfortunate, was not only wicked, but dirty. Could any unbeliever offer a greater insult to the scriptures than by asserting that the scriptures had enjoined on Christians as a sacred duty what the light of nature had taught heathens to regard as the last excess of baseness? In the scripture was to be found the history of a king of Israel, driven from his palace by an unnatural son, and compelled to fly beyond Jordan. David, like James, had the right. Absalom, like William, had the possession. Would any student of the sacred writings dare to affirm that the conduct of Shimei, 
on that occasion was proposed as a pattern to be imitated, and that Barzilla, who loyally adhered to his fugitive master, was resisting the ordinance of God and receiving to himself damnation? Would any true son of the Church of England seriously affirm that a man who was a strenuous royalist till after the Battle of Naseby, who then went over to the Parliament, who, as soon as the Parliament had been purged, became an obsequious servant of the rump, and who, as soon as the rump had been ejected, professed himself a faithful subject of the protector, was more deserving of the respect of Christian men than the stout old cavalier who bore true fealty to Charles I in prison and to Charles II in exile, and who was ready to put lands, liberty, life, in peril rather than acknowledge, by word or act, the authority of any of the upstart governments which, during that evil time, obtained possession of a power not legitimately theirs? And what distinction was there between that case and the case which had now arisen, that Cromwell had actually enjoyed as much power as William, nay, much more power than William, was quite certain, that the power of William, as well as the power of Cromwell, had an illegitimate origin. No divine who held the doctrine of non-resistance would dispute. How, then, was it possible for such a divine to deny that obedience had been due to Cromwell? and yet to affirm that it was due to William, to suppose that there could be such inconsistency without dishonesty, would be not charity but weakness. Those who were determined to comply with the Act of Parliament would do better to speak out, and to say what everybody knew, that they complied simply to save their benefices. The motive was no doubt strong, that a clergyman, who was a husband and a father, should look forward with dread to the first of august and the first of february was natural but he would do well to remember that however terrible might be the day of suspension and the day of deprivation there would assuredly come two other days more terrible still the day of death and the day of judgment the swearing clergy as they were called were not a little perplexed by this reasoning Nothing embarrassed him more than the analogy which the non-jurors were never weary of pointing out between the usurpation of Cromwell and the usurpation of William. For there was in that age no high churchman who would not have thought himself reduced to an absurdity if he had been reduced to the necessity of saying that the church had commanded her sons to obey Cromwell. And yet it was impossible to prove that William was more fully in possession of supreme power than Cromwell had been. The swearers therefore avoided coming to close quarters with the non-jurors on this point as carefully as the non-jurors avoided coming to close quarters with the swearers on the question touching the practice of the primitive church. The truth is that the theory of government, which had long been taught by the clergy, was so absurd that it could lead to nothing but absurdity. Whether the priests who adhered to that theory were swore or refused to swear, he was alike unable to give a rational explanation of his conduct. If he swore, he could vindicate his swearing only by laying down propositions against which every honest heart instinctively revolts, only by proclaiming that Christ had commanded the church to desert the righteous cause as soon as that cause ceased to prosper, and to strengthen the hands of successful villainy against afflicted virtue. And yet, strong as were the objections to this doctrine, the objections to the doctrine of the non-juror were, if possible, stronger still. 
According to him, a Christian nation ought always to be in the state of slavery or in a state of anarchy. Something is to be said for the man who sacrifices liberty to preserve order. Something is to be said for the man who sacrifices order to preserve liberty. For liberty and order are two of the greatest blessings which a society can enjoy, and, when unfortunately they appear to be incompatible, much indulgence is due to those who take either side. But the non-juror sacrificed, not liberty to order, not order to liberty, but both liberty and order to a superstition as stupid and degrading as the Egyptian worship of cats and onions. While a particular person, differing from other persons by the mere accident of birth, was on the throne, though he might be Nero, there was to be no insubordination. When any other person was on the throne, though he might be an Alfred, there was to be no obedience. It mattered not how frantic and wicked might be the administration of the dynasty, which had the hereditary title, or how wise and virtuous might be the administration of a government sprung from a revolution, nor could any time of limitation be pleaded against the claim of the expelled family. The lapse of years, the lapse of ages, made no change. To the end of the world, Christians were to regulate their political conduct simply according to the genealogy of their ruler. The year 1800, the year 1900, might find princesses who derive their title from the votes of the convention reigning in peace and prosperity. No matter, they would still be usurpers. And if, in the 20th or 21st century, any person who could make out a better right by blood to the crown should call on a late posterity to acknowledge him as king, the call must be obeyed on peril of eternal perdition. A Whig might well enjoy the thought that the controversies which had arisen among his adversaries had established the soundness of his own political creed. The disputants who had long agreed in accusing him of an impious error had now effectively vindicated him and refuted one another. The high churchman, who took the oaths had shown by irrefragable arguments from the gospels and the epistles, from the uniform practice of the primitive church, and from the explicit declarations of the Anglican church that Christians were not in all cases bound to pay obedience to the prince who had the hereditary title. The high churchman, who would not take the oath, had shown as satisfactorily that Christians were not in all cases bound to pay obedience to the prince who was actually reigning. It followed that, to entitle a government to the allegiance of subjects, something was necessary different from mere legitimacy, and different also from mere possession. What that something was the Whigs had no difficulty in pronouncing. In their view, the end for which all governments had been instituted was the happiness of society. While the magistrate was, on the whole, notwithstanding some faults, a minister for good, reason taught mankind to obey him, and religion, giving her solemn sanction to the teaching of reason, commanded mankind to revere him as divinely commissioned, but if he proved to be a minister for evil, on what grounds was he to be considered as divinely commissioned? The Tories who swore had proved that he ought not to be so considered on account of the origin of his power. The Tories who could not swear had proved as clearly that he ought not to be so considered on account of the existence of his power. Some violent and acrimonious Whigs triumphed ostentatiously and with merciless insolence over the perplexed and divided priesthood. 
the non-juror they generally affected to regard with contemptuous pity as a dull and perverse but sincere bigot whose absurd practice was in harmony with the absurd theory and who might plead in excuse for the infatuation which impelled him to ruin his country that the same infatuation had impelled him to ruin himself they reserved their sharpest taunts for those divines who having in the days of the exclusion bill and the rye house plot been distinguished by zeal for the divine and indefeasible right of the hereditary sovereign were now ready to swear fealty to an usurper was this then the real sense of all those sublime phrases which had resounded during twenty-nine years from innumerable pulpits had the thousands of clergymen who had so loudly boasted of the unchangeable loyalty of their order really meant only that their loyalty would remain unchangeable till the next change of fortune it was idle it was impudent in them to pretend that their present conduct was consistent with their former language if any reverend doctor had at length been convinced that he had been in the wrong he surely ought by an open recantation to make all the amends now possible to the persecuted the calumniated the murdered defenders of liberty if he was still convinced that his old opinions were sound he ought manfully to cast to his lot with the non-jurors respect it was said is due to him who ingeniously confesses an error respect is due to him who courageously suffers for an error but it is difficult to respect a minister of religion who while asserting that he still adheres to the principles of the Tories, saves his benefice by taking an oath which can be honestly taken only on the principles of the Whigs. These reproaches, though perhaps not altogether unjust, were unseasonable. The wiser and more moderate Whigs, sensible that the throne of William could not stand firm if it had not a wider basis than their own party, abstained to this conjecture from snares and invections, and exerted themselves to remove the scruples and to soothe the irritated feelings of the clergy the collective power of the rectors and the vicars of england was immense and it was much better that they should swear for the most flimsy reason that could be devised by a softest than they should not swear at all it soon became clear that the arguments for swearing backed as they were by some of the strongest motives which can influence the human mind had prevailed above twenty-nine thirtieths of the profession submitted to the law most of the divines of the capital who then formed a separate class and who were as much distinguished from the rural clergy by liberality of sentiment as by eloquence and learning gave in their adhesion to the government early and with every sign of cordial attachment eighty of them repaired together in full term to westminster hall and were there sworn the ceremony occupied so long a time that little else was done that day in the course of chancery and king's bench but in general the compliance was tardy sad and sullen many no doubt deliberately sacrificed principle to interest conscience told them that they were committing a sin but they had not fortitude to resign the parsonage the garden the glebe and to go forth without knowing where to find a meal or a roof for themselves and their little ones many swore with doubts and misgivings some declared at the moment of taking the oath that they did not mean to promise that they would not submit to james if he should ever be in a condition to demand their allegiance some clergymen in the north were on the first of august going in a company to swear when they were met on the road by the news of the battle which had been fought 
four days before in the pass of Killiecrank. They immediately turned back and did not again leave their homes on the same errand till it was clear that Dundee's victory had made no change in the state of public affairs. Even of those whose understanding were fully convinced that obedience was due to the existing government, very few kissed the book with the heartiness with which they had formerly plighted their faith to Charles and James. Still the thing was done. Ten thousand clergymen had solemnly called heaven to attest their promise that they would be true liegemen to Williams, and this promise, though it by no means warranted him in expecting that they would strenuously support him, had at least deprived them of a great part of their power to injure him. They could not, without entirely forfeiting that public respect on which their influence depended, attack, except in an indirect and timidly cautious manner, the throne of one whom they had, in the presence of God, vowed to obey as their king. Some of them, it is true, affected to read the prayers for the new sovereigns in a peculiar tone which could not be misunderstood. Others were guilty of still grosser indecency. Thus, one wretch, just after praying for William and Mary in the most solemn office of religion, took off a glass to their damnation. Another, after performing divine service on a fast day appointed by their authority, dined on a pigeon pie, and while he cut it up, uttered a wish that it was a usurper's heart. But such audacious wickedness was doubtless rare, and was rather injurious to the church than to the government. End of section 8